Good morning, Apex, or I'm sorry, I'm a little nervous. Good morning, New Community Church. I'm Kim Benicki. I'm with the um, Spotswoods House Church, Koinonia. Um, we're reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 14, verse 47 through 52. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck, and, uh, struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishwi, and Malchi Shua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal, and the name of Saul's wife was Abinom for the, the daughter of Amiaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, uncle, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attacked him to himself attached him to himself. You can have a seat, please. So how do you uh, evaluate um, a leader? How do you approve or disapprove of somebody in, in a leadership position like uh, Saul was in? Um, the passage that uh, Kim just read is an, an interesting passage in that um, uh, this passage, uh, it was written by someone, and then the, the editor of First and Second Samuel takes, takes what was written and inserts it in, in the order in which we find it in, in this book. Remember, First and Second Samuel is, is, is edited, it's compiled together. And someone um, writes this, uh, looking at the, the reign and rule of Saul, and, and looking at, at, at Saul's reign and, and saying that he's giving his thumbs up, he's giving his approval of this. He's, he's seen in a positive light. In this passage of Scripture, Saul is seen as this uh, valiant, um, mighty warrior, family man, king in this passage. And what's interesting about that is the editor uh, purposely places this right in the middle of a, a larger section of, of narrative, a larger section of story and before this and before after this, there's this, this storyline that, that runs that paints actually a very different picture of what Saul was like as a ruler. Where this individual looking at, at all of, of Saul's life, is, is, he's approving of it. He's giving his thumbs up. He's saying Saul is a good king. The stories that, that, that talk about what Saul actually did and how he behaved actually paint a picture of, of, of not being a good king. In fact, uh, God disapproves of him. And so uh, the editor is, is purposely doing this. He's showing us that on one hand, Saul was approved of by man. On the other hand, he was rejected and disapproved of by God. So um, in Scripture, we see uh, the exhortation to not fear men. And, and, and by that, not fear women either. It's this, uh, this idea, when this word fear is used, is, it's actually used in a, in a context of worship. And it doesn't mean like to run away in terror from, from someone. What, what it means is it's to not give weight to someone's opinion of you. It's, it's not to glorify a per, uh, someone by, by allowing their thoughts or opinions of you determine who you are and how you should live. 
this, this idea of glorifying somebody, uh, in essentially, essentially it's, it's worshiping somebody when, when you allow them to dictate and determine who you are. That's what fear of man is in the Bible. On the other hand, Scripture tells us to, to fear the Lord. We are to fear the Lord. We, we are to, to give him weight. We are to, to let his opinion of us, who he is and what he's done for us, we're let, the, we're let God shape us and define us, and, and as a result, we worship him. We glorify him. We're not to fear men. We are to fear God. And what we see played out in Saul's life is that he didn't fear God. He feared man. And the end result is, is he gets what he wants. Right here in 1 Samuel 14, we see that Saul gets the approval of man. But at the cost of being rejected by God. How do you determine the approval of someone? Um, back in the 30s, a Gallup poll was invented that, that came to be known as the presidential approval rating. Um, it was a question that was asked of American citizens several times um, throughout a presidential term. And so you look back at, at history since the 1930s, every president has uh, different presidential ratings and a range of, of those ratings. Um, but, but Americans were asked this question, uh, do you approve or disapprove of the way that the current president is handling their job as president? Do you approve or disapprove? Right? The approval of a president from, from the people. And now, uh, there, there's some wisdom to this, right? If you have a nation by the people for the people, the, that elected official should take into consideration uh, the people's opinion. On the other hand, I think we could recognize that if there's a leader who, um, who lives for the approval of people, like he has these, these great big decisions in front of him and based on, on, his, on raising his presidential approval rating, that's how he's going to answer these decisions. I think we could say that's a, that's a bad idea, right? Think of this as, as parents. Uh, parents, if, if your kids have a parental proving, uh, approval rating for you, and let's just say that you decided to live to gain a higher approval rating from your children, uh, things like bedtime would, would just go out the window right? Um, things like nutrition, right? Uh, vegetables and protein exchanged for juice and sugar in order to have a, a higher approval rating, right? Every store you go into, uh, you, you're, your kids are constantly saying, buy me that, buy me that, buy me that. You go broke because you want a higher approval rating from your children. Uh, for me with, with my son, Hank and Jack, we go down, driving down the road and, and they want me to be a race car driver, they want me to pass this car. They want me to catch that motorcycle. They want me to go faster. Like if, if I drove according to this approval rating from, from my kids, I, I probably wouldn't have a license anymore. So we can recognize like that that's foolish, right? And yet, the reality is, is, is many of us, like Saul, are living our lives for the approval of people. All the time. We're living our lives allowing people to shape who we are. We're living for the approval of others just like Saul. So we're going to uh, pick up where we left off last week. Um, we saw last week that, that God installed Saul as king, that God, uh, he, he loved Saul, and he demonstrated that love to him by, uh, by redeeming his past, um, by affirming over and over again that he's, his presence with him, that, that, that Saul, he, he needed to know that God was with him, that he could lean on God, that he could trust God to guide him as a leader, that God was present with him. God loved Saul. 
And, and where we left off last week is uh, Samuel is, is giving his farewell speech and he's beginning to sort of fade into the background as Saul is sort of coming to the foreground and taking leadership. And Samuel says, he, he urges the people, exhorts the people to fear the Lord their God. And he's basically putting the question to them, to King and to the Israelites, will you fear the Lord your God? Will you fear God? And, and what we're going to see in the passage today is the answer is, is no. Saul won't. Um, there's two things that, that I, I hope that you walk away with this morning, two points I want to make. Uh, the first one is this. Uh, to seek the approval of man, otherwise known in the Bible as fear of man, to seek the approval of man is to believe in a fallen God who gives you an unstable identity and results in you earning slavery rather than salvation. Let me explain that. To, to understand that fear of man is worship. It's to exalt a human being and to give them weight over your life. It's a form of worship. To, to uh, seek the approval of man is to believe in a fallen God. H- human beings are fallen human beings. We're sinful. We've rejected God. We're broken. And for you to elevate a person and to give that person weight over your life and to let that person define you, that's to worship a fallen God. And what that results in is, is, is an unstable identity for you. Look, if you live your life for the approval of men or, or people, that means that whenever you walk into a new room, you have a different set of people, a different set of standards that you have to live up to. And so your identity will change depending on the people around you. Your identity will change from one room to another. You walk into to your place of work and there's your boss and they're your coworkers and they have these expectations of you and you're living for their approval and you're gonna be a different person than when you walk home and you go into your living room and there's your spouse and there's your children who have different sets of expectations for you. And then you get up from there and you come to a place like this and you walk into this room and you know some people but you don't know others. You might be sitting in a row with strangers and yet these strangers, that there's some part of you that wants their approval of you. And that even determines like how, how you'll worship, how you'll express yourself. And all of a sudden you have a different identity. You have an unstable identity when, when you have this fear of men. And this leads to earning slavery rather than salvation. You're earning approval, but it results in bondage and slavery rather than salvation. The second point I want us to walk away with is is this, to seek the approval of God, on the other hand. Otherwise known in Scripture as the fear of the Lord is to believe in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. To take who he is and what he has done for you and from that find a stable, secure, permanent, redeemed identity. And out of that, live in freedom. So with that, I'm going to open us up in prayer and we're going to dive in. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for loving us so much that uh, you approved of us through your son Jesus. Uh, Father, I I pray for those of us who are are living um, in in the bondage of, of being afraid of of people, of giving weight to people to dictate who we are. I pray that uh, you would open the eyes of our heart to see a better way, and by the power of your spirit, uh, live that way. Uh, Father, I pray that the words people hear this morning are yours and not mine. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
So uh, what we're going to be doing this morning, we're going to be in, in 1 Samuel 13 all the way through the end of, of 15. Um, and as we've talked about before, there's a lot here, so we're not going to go through it line by line. I'm going to summarize it for you. But um, I'm going to trust that you're going to have Bibles open, whether that's an app on your phone or a Bible in your lap. You're going to have Bibles open. You're going to follow along. You're going to investigate. You're going to see this for yourself. You're not going to take my word for what it says. So I'm going to summarize it for you. And there's five sort of scenes within this passage that, that I want us to see. And from each scene, you'll, you'll see see one, one different result of what it looks like uh, to, to fear men as demonstrated by Saul. So uh, 13, beginning in, in chapter, verse 1, what we see, the, the very thing, first thing that Saul does is uh, he, he raises up an army. First act as king is to, to raise a standing army. Um, he he handpicks 3,000 men. Uh, he forms from these men three divisions of troops. Um, he will oversee and lead two of those divisions. Uh, one of these divisions will be led by Jonathan, who we find out later is his son. So he raises a standing army. He sends the rest of Israel home, and then he doesn't do anything. And, and his inaction is contrasted by the action of Jonathan. Jonathan recognizes there's this, there's, uh, this, this uh, uh, Philistine uh, encampment uh, garrison. It's only four miles away from Saul's hometown. And he has this attitude of, well, this is, this is our promised land. This is the land that God has given to us, his people. Like, why are we allowing people to, to set up a garrison four miles away from our home? And so jo- uh, Jonathan, without asking permission, acts. And he attacks the garrison. And he wins. Right? But, but here's the, the first picture of, of, of someone who, who lives out of this fear of man. Fear of man results in inaction. Fear of man results in an inability to act. You, you might understand this, especially if, if you're in a leadership position, uh, that, that there's people watching the decisions that you make. And there's this pressure that if you make the wrong choice, everybody's going to see it. You make the wrong decision, everybody's going to know about your failure, and so out of this fear, you don't act. Uh, we're going to ask application questions along uh, with, with, uh, as we process this this morning, and here's the first one for you. How has your search for approval kept you from acting? In my own life, um, I, I see that you know, I believe in the power of the gospel. I believe uh, that, that what Jesus has done for me is the most powerful, profound thing that anybody could experience, and everybody needs to experience this, and yet it comes to my, my relationships with other people. There are some people that, that I don't uh, proclaim the gospel to because I'm worried about losing their approval of me. I'm worried about what they'll think of me. Another way this plays out in, in action in my life is that there are, uh, there are people that that I love, who, who have a relationship with Jesus, and yet they're not living the life that they've been called to live, and, and, and there's, there's sin in their life. And, and instead of sitting them down and being willing to have a hard conversation with them, instead of, of, of being willing to, to confront sin in, in their life lovingly, I say nothing because I'm afraid of their opinion of me. So out of a fear of man, it, it leads to inaction. And we see that demonstrated in, in Saul. Um, so, uh, what, what happens then is, uh, so Jonathan, uh, he, he defeats this garrison, and uh, the, there's a horn blast, and Israel's called in to get ready to go to war against the Philistines. And so, the, the Israelites assemble. The problem is the Philistines assemble too. 
and they are better equipped, they're better armed, they're better trained, uh, they're better organized, their numbers far outmatch that of the Israelites. And so when the Israelites show up and they see the Philistines encamped against them, they are scared, and so they run and they hide in holes or in caves or, or, or in wells. They run and hide from the Philistine army. Now, apparently, there's been uh, some sort of predetermined date and time where uh, Saul and Samuel will get together, and Samuel will intercede on behalf of the people. In his role as priest, he'll intercede on behalf of the people. They'll offer sacrifices, and they'll, they'll inquire of the Lord about what is to be done. Well, the date and time arrives, and Samuel doesn't show up, and so Saul takes matters into his own hands. He takes matters into his own hands. He, he stops acting as king and he starts acting as priest. He goes outside of his role and usurps somebody else's role. And so he offers the sacrifices in place of Samuel. And so Samuel shows up and says, what have you done? Verses 11 and 12. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines and had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. He steps out of his role as king, and he usurps this role of, of priest. And so the second thing that we see in regards to fear of man is it results in surpassing your limits. It means acting on authority you don't have. So, so here's Saul at the beginning, and, and because of fear of man, he's, a, he's afraid to act. And now the pendulum's going to swing too far the other way. Now he's going to act outside of his bounds of authority. He's going to act like a priest when he's, he's, he's not a priest. It's going beyond the, the bounds of his, his own authority. Um, I had a, a, a sergeant in the army who was fond, of, fond of, of saying, stay in your own lane. Stay in your own lane. Uh, Saul leaves his lane. Another question for you for application is how have you acted outside of your authority in order to keep the approval of people? You ever acted like a boss when you weren't a boss? Have you, have you ever, like, you know, with, with, with coworkers, right? Your boss isn't present and a decision needs to be made and so you're going to rise to the occasion and you're going to determine what's going to happen. You're going to be the boss when the boss isn't there. Or, or maybe in parenting, this happens. Your kids come to you and your spouse isn't there and they come to you with some, something big, right? And you probably should talk to your spouse about it first, but you're going to go ahead and pull the trigger on whatever it is anyway, and you make a decision without your spouse. And later on, your spouse is like, what did you do? And all of a sudden, they look like the bad guy, and you look like the good guy. Like, you, you acted like a single parent making a decision for your family without the other one. Like, going outside of the bounds of, of, of your authority in order to gain the approval of people. See, uh, Saul is, is, is looking at, at his army and they're deserting him. They're afraid of the Philistines and they're running away. And in order to try to, 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 to hold on to these people, to keep them from going, he needs, to, he needs to establish some confidence in them. They need to believe in Saul in order to stay. And so he, he steps out, outside of his bounds of authority in order to do that. It's fear of man. There's consequences for that. Verses 13 and 14, and Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
So the consequences of this is that God will take the kingdom away from Saul's descendants. In light of the big picture of Scripture, it means that Saul will, will, will not be in the messianic line, if that makes sense. So the consequences are a future kingdom taken away. Uh, what we also see at the end of chapter 13 is that the fighting force has been reduced from 3,000 to 600. And on top of that, we discover that the, the, the weapons that the Israelites are using, they're farming implements. The only people that have swords is Saul and Jonathan. And so here's, this, here's a picture of the Israelite army. 600 people with farming implements against thousands of Philistines with chariots. And that doesn't seem to daunt Jonathan. Chapter 14 begins, and we see this. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Meanwhile, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Two different scenes here. Jonathan looking at an army of 600 people with farming implements and looking at the vast Philistines army and he's saying, let's go pick a fight. Meanwhile, Saul's hiding in a cave. Action in action again. Saul's hiding in a cave, but he's hiding in a cave with a new priest. Samuel's left him, so he's sent to Shiloh and, and he's, he's, he's got this, this new priest. So there he is, he's hiding but he's got his priest. Meanwhile, Jonathan is deciding to pick a fight. Look at verse six. He says, Jonathan said to the, the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. See, Jonathan remembers Gideon. God, Jonathan remembers a time where God used a handful of people to destroy a, a vastly superior force, and he believes that God could do it again. You see, Jonathan has faith he has faith. Saul, he's got a priest. Think about that. Fear of man results in replacing faith with religiosity. Replacing faith with religiosity. Next question for you is how have you replaced submission to God with religious activity? How, how have you you, you, you have this God who, who's, who's made himself known to you as a father who desires for you to come to him with your needs. You, you have a God who desires to have a relationship with you, but instead of going to him and treating him like, like what he's revealed to you as this heavenly father, instead, you, you pretend like he's, he's some magic, you know, lucky rabbit's foot, or, 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 or he's like a genie in a bottle, or he's like a dice to be rolled. Like he's something to be manipulated. He's not a person, he's a thing to be manipulated in order to get what you want. And you think that the, the way you manipulate him is through religious things. Saul's hiding in a cave with a priest. Jonathan's acting in faith. How do you do that? Verse 24 and 25, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Uh, after Jonathan had, had taken that garrison and, uh, and, and the war sort of uh, uh, begins, um, uh, people begin to join the fight with, with Jonathan. 
The Israelites come out of their holes and they engage in battle and they have the Philistines on their heels and they're beginning to turn the tide and they're, they're winning against the Philistines. But, but it's tiring, it's exhausting worse, you know, chasing these Philistines down. And so the men are hard pressed. And we see this, so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening and I'm avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted any food. So once again, Saul follows inaction with unwise action, right? They're turning the tide. They're going after these Philistines. And Saul says something just ridiculously unwise. Don't eat. Don't, don't, don't take on board any fuel for the fight. Go into battle hungry. This is completely unwise. And he makes this, this very rash vow. Don't eat until evening and I'm avenged. Isn't it amazing how people who fear men constantly have to prove themselves? He has this unstable identity. He makes this rash vow. Now, Jonathan doesn't know about the vow. He comes across a large supply of honey, so he eats it. And he's refreshed by it. And and the soldiers with him is like, wait, 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 you know, your your dad said we couldn't do that. There's this vow that we can't eat until sundown, and he's avenged. And Jonathan's like, that's ridiculous. And it was. It was ridiculous. The result of this very brash and unwise move of Saul is that the the men of Israel, they're they're hungry. They're so hungry that at at sundown, they come across the Philistines' animals that they've left behind, and they just slaughter them and start eating the raw meat because they're so ravenously hungry. In other words, so, so Saul's just ridiculous rule leads to sin. At least the people were not, Israelite people were not supposed to eat meat with the blood in it. They're sinning against God as a result of this, this vow that, that Saul makes. So, so in the end, they, they, they sacrifice the animals, they, they barbecue them up, they eat, and, uh, and Saul says, let's go after the Philistines tonight. And the, and the priest is like, well, maybe we should, we, should talk, maybe we should talk to God about this. Why not? But God's silent. God won't answer the, the priest's inquiries. And so um, Saul says, it's probably because somebody broke my vow. Long story short, it's determined that it is Jonathan who broke the vow. And, and, it, and it's, it, it's to the point where Saul is actually willing to execute his own son in order to save face because of this vow that he made. And the people actually intercede on behalf of Jonathan and save him, ransom him. But his, his own dad is willing to execute his son in order to maintain this dominance. Fear of men results in wisdom being traded for control. Wisdom being traded for control. How have you tried to maintain people's approval through domineering rules? I do this with my kids. Stop fighting with your brother or else insert ridiculous rule. Stop fighting with your brother or I won't read you a bedtime story. That is unwise. Bedtime stories help them fall asleep. That's a ridiculous rule. What am I doing? I'm threatening them. I'm trying to gain control over them by making stuff up. I'm trying to control their behavior. This is what Saul's trying to do. He's trying to to, to show his Israelite troops that he's the one to be feared and and revered. And so he's going to make this brash vow and enforce it. Like he's the big man. 
Can you see like the tiny little ego on him though? We do this out of fear of man. We come up with these with weird rules and we draw weird lines in the sand and try to, try to make people succumb or force them into our will. It's all because ultimately we're actually scared of them. So then we're going to skip over 14 uh, verses 47 through 52. We'll come back in that, to, to that. We'll come to the last scene here. And this is the, 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 the Amalekite debacle. Chapter uh, 15 verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul... The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out, up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Uh, for more uh, on this, you could look at Exodus 17 or Deuteronomy 25. Um, but way, many, many, many years before this, when the Israelites were coming up out of, out of slavery in Egypt and headed to the promised land, the Amalekites attacked them. And God saw this as a personal attack on himself. And so God determined to judge all of the Amalekite people. And so uh, Joshua, uh, Moses' successor, he was the one who was supposed to, to, to wipe out the Amalekites. He didn't do it, and so now God is tapping Saul on the, on the shoulder and telling him to do it. Now, you need to understand that this is a war that is not about gain. It's not about profit. It's not about land or territory or, or anything else. This is about God judging people because he has the right to do so. So Saul is supposed to go, and he's supposed to destroy everyone and everything. And he partially obeys. He destroys the people, but anything that they owned that had value, he kept for himself. And God sees this. And God tells Samuel about it. Verses 10 through 12. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So as we talked about last week, this word uh, regret that you see there, God regrets. God is an omniscient, sovereign being. The word regret doesn't apply to him the same way it replies to us. It also could be translated as repent. God is a holy and righteous God. The word repent doesn't apply to him as it applies to us. What we need to understand here is God is using human language in order to convey a deep grief that he's carrying towards Saul. He loved Saul. He installed Saul. He redeemed Saul's past. He loved Saul, and yet Saul did not love him in return. See the grief of God here. We also see here that, uh, that Saul decided to erect a monument to himself. He decides to erect a monument for himself. So Saul is confronted by Samuel. Samuel basically says, why haven't you obeyed? And Saul says, I did obey. I wiped out the Amalekites. And Samuel's like, well, you were supposed to devote everything to destruction. How come I hear the bleeding of animals? Oh, those. Uh, they're going to be a sacrifice to God. I'm going to give those to God. And here's Samuel's response to that. Verses 22 through 23. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Essentially what Samuel is saying here is that to to glorify yourself, you're raising this monument, to glorify yourself, it's, it's as satanic as divination or idolatry. From the beginning, Satan has been about self-glorification, about raising his throne above the throne of God. Saul is not acting godly, he's acting satanic. To self-glorify. This is what he's doing. You see, those animals that he's taken from the Amalekites, he goes down to Gilgal where he was anointed as king and he's gonna throw a big party and he is gonna sacrifice these animals, but guess who's gonna get to eat them? The people. He's going to throw a great big party and a banquet, and it's going to give lip service to God, but really glorify Saul and his great victory over the Amalekites. He is glorifying himself, and that's what we see. Fear of man results in self-glorification. How have you taken credit for the work that God has done? How have you taken credit for for God's work? See, um, we may not you know, erect monuments to ourselves in that way that Saul did. But we do try to tell the world about our success in visible ways so that they look at what we have and say, they're successful. And we find approval from them because of that. And whether that's the car we drive or the house that we own, all of it is meant to point to our success. And you might say, well, I'm successful because I'm smart. I'm smart, I put my mind to work and to use, and because of that, I am successful. Great, who gave you that intellect? And you would say, well, I have success because of this education, and I worked hard to earn this degree and that degree. I put myself through school, I have this education, that's why I'm successful. Great, who gave you the ability to learn? And you would say, it's because of this work ethic that I have. I get up early, and I get it done, and I handle it. It's because of this work ethic that I have that I'm successful. Great. Where did you get that work ethic? See, we want to believe that our successes come from us when really they come from God. And when we don't give God credit for that, we glorify ourselves instead of him. And that's to act not godly, it's to act like Satan. And we do that so that we can earn the approval of people. Back to 1 Samuel 14, 47 through 52. I'm gonna read this again. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. I'm gonna stop right there. Do you know there's God anywhere in there? Keep going. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, the name of the younger Michal, and the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahamaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him 
to himself. So here this, this, this story of, of Saul's reign and rule. The editor purposely includes whoever this person is giving their thumbs up and their validation and their approval for the, the, the reign of Saul. And he puts it right here in the middle of this larger narrative that shows how he didn't have God's approval. This isn't a lie. Saul had the approval of man, but he didn't have the approval of God. You see what's interesting? If you were to assign Saul an approval rating, and if you were to look at the life of David and assign David an approval rating, do you know that Saul's approval rating would have been higher than David's? Towards the end of David's life, and into Solomon's life, he actually wasn't popular among the people. In fact, the reason, uh, part of the reason that the book of, of Ruth is included, Ruth is all about his lineage, um, verifying the fact that he was chosen of God to be king. But it's trying to prove a point that he was God's man for the job because a lot of people didn't think that David was the right man for the job. And if you look at their history, from a human standpoint, Saul was better than David. Saul only had one wife. How many did David have? Saul didn't commit adultery. David did. Saul didn't murder the husband of the woman he had adultery with. Saul didn't have a son who sexually assaulted his sister. David did. Saul didn't have a son who murdered his brothers. David did. Saul didn't have a son who tried to take away the kingdom from his father. David did. Like, you, you want to compare resumes between Saul and David, which one gets the higher approval rating in man's eyes? Saul does. And Saul got what he wanted. Saul got the approval of man, and there, there it is, right in front of you, on the page. But all around it is the disapproval of God. You see, there's one thing that's different between Saul and David. David sinned horribly, but David repented. When Saul messed up, when he sinned against God, he gave lip service to God, but he never really repented of what he did because he didn't fear God. He feared man. David feared God. And the truth is, is there's a lot of Saul in us. There's a lot of Saul in me. There are times that I don't act. I refuse to take action, I refuse to open my mouth, I refuse to, to act because I am concerned that I will make a mistake and the eyes of the world will see it. Times I don't act. There are times when I step out of, of the role that I've been given and I step into other roles and I try to usurp other people's authority, even times trying to usurp the Holy Spirit's authority in other people's lives and telling them what to do and manipulate them. Out of fear of man. There are times when, when, when I make up idiotic rules and try to, to, to dominate and try to force people to my way of thinking. There are times when I use religiosity to cover up an absence of faith and I'm willing to hide out in a Christian cave 
with, with religious activity rather than in faith boldly standing before the enemy. And I glorify myself. I spend a lot of time glorifying myself. I haven't never erected a statue to myself, but in hundreds of little tiny ways, in thoughts and in attitudes and words, I glorify myself. Some of you, we've talked about this before. If you, if you ever come up to me after a gathering and you, and, and you give me some praise regarding the message that was just preached, you know what the first words out of my mouth are? Anybody heard me? Praise God. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to my own heart. Because in that moment, I have to seize that. And I have to say, no, this isn't about me. This isn't about my glory. This is about what God has done through me. If there's anything that ever comes out of my mouth that's of value and of worth to you, that helps you, you need to know that didn't come from me. That came from God. Praise God. Praise God. I glorify myself. This live stream thing that we've started because of COVID, we're, we're keeping it going because it, it has some effect. It has some usefulness to it. But do you know what I realized? It's this one more opportunity for me to try to prove myself to other people, to try to use some screen in order to convey something about me to win the approval of people, not even in this town. Because I want to glorify myself. Like, did you see? Like, that's sick. And it's all for the approval of me. Like, we do this. There's the heart of Saul that's there. And the truth is, is to seek the approval of man is to believe in a fallen God. You know, to seek your approval. You're not God. You're being redeemed. You're being restored. You're being transformed by the Holy Spirit in you. It's wonderful, but you're not God. And to put you in a position over me of having this weight over my life, that it defines me. It's not good. Like, like Saul, you know, I, 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 I betray my family. There'll be times at dinner and I, I break out my phone and, and I, I'm responding to texts when, when I should be with, present with my kids. I'm on a date with my wife and I'm reading emails and I'm responding to emails when I'm on a date with my wife. Why? Because I want people to think that I'm on top of my job and I'm a really good pastor. That's the heart of Saul in us. And, and I do that because I'm, I'm, I'm elevating people and I'm putting them in a position of God. And ben, but when I do that, I put myself into a, a place where I have an unstable identity. And ultimately, what I'm, what I'm ending up with is, is bondage. The approval of man must be earned, resulting in liquid-like, unstable identity, which leads to death. But are you ready for the good news? The approval of God isn't earned, it's given. The approval of God isn't earned, it's given. You have to earn the approval of men. Jesus has actually already earned your approval. You see, God understood that there was no possible way that you were ever gonna earn the approval of God. There was no way back to him. There was no way to redeem or restore that relationship. It was impossible. And so God sent you his son, and, and, and the Son of God comes and he lives the life that you couldn't live, a life completely 100% approved of by God the Father. He lives the perfect, sinless, righteous, faithful life that you and I can't live. He lived the life approved of by God. And then he takes that life to the cross and the great exchange is made. And Jesus takes your disapproval. 
Jesus takes what you've done, what you've earned from God. He takes that on him and he gives you his approval. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his justification. So that when God the Father looks at you right now, he doesn't see your disapproval. He doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. You have the approval of God. If you go to the cross and if you embrace who Jesus is, if you take on his life and his death and his resurrection, if you believe in what he's done for you and you stop trying to earn it, and if you'll embrace it and believe it and internalize it, and, and out of that comes this, this new identity, you have a new identity that's redeemed and it's approved of by God, and you can't lose it. Isn't that good news? If you're already approved of by God, then you don't have to be indecisive or unable to act because the outcome of whatever decision won't change God's approval of you. If you're already approved of by God, then you don't have to assume other people's jobs or usurp other people's authority because regardless of the outcome, God's not going to change his mind and remove his approval of you. If you're already approved of by God, then you won't have to manipulate or control God through religious acts because he's a person who loves you and he's not going to change his mind about it. If you're already approved of by God, then you won't have to control others. That's what I just said. Through ridiculous rules or threats. Because again, God's not going to remove his approval from you. If you're already approved of by God, then self-glorification will seem foolish. Because in light of what Jesus has done for you, any success you could ever have pales in comparison. But in those moments when you try to glorify yourself again, God's not going to change his mind about it. You understand, you have been approved of by God if you are in Jesus Christ. And God's not going to change his mind. And this leads to freedom. This is freedom because you can walk into any room and recognize that, that you might encounter anybody that you know in that room and they have no power over you to define you and to determine who you are and how you should live because that is done by God. Because you don't have to give weight to those people anymore to define you. This is freedom, and it's not just freedom for you, it's freedom for them, because guess what? Now people don't have to worry about if you're using them or manipulating them to fill some sort of need with inside of you, because you need their approval. This is freedom, it's freedom for you, and it's freedom for all of the relationships that you have to recognize the approval of the Most High God on you, over you, because of what Jesus has done. So what do we do with that? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Who are the people that you've given too much weight to? Your boss? Your coworker? Your spouse? Children? Who are the people you've given too much weight to? You, you have allowed them to determine who you are. You're glorifying them and you're essentially worshiping them rather than God. Who have you given too much weight to? Acknowledge that, repent of that, and take them and put them in the right place within your heart. And then in faith, turn to the one who, who should have the right place. Lord Jesus, take over. Lord Jesus, I've been approved of because of what you've done for me. Help me to submit to your reign and your rule over my life. Help me to know and to walk in the fear of the Lord. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father. Thank you. Thank you for making a way. There is nothing that we could have done to earn back what we lost in rejecting you. There is no way to gain your approval again. There's no way we could buy it, no hoops we could jump through to earn it. We were lost. We were your enemies. We were slaves to the opinions and the rules of other people. But you sent your son to change all that. Lord Jesus, thank you for making that great exchange. Thank you for taking the blame for me, for taking God's rejection, for taking God's disapproval, and in exchange giving me your righteousness and the Father's approval. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to live out this truth, that this wouldn't be a truth that's trapped in our minds, but that it would flow through our words and our attitudes and our actions, that we would discover the freedom that comes from fearing the Lord and not fearing man. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.